You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I hate to break it to you guys. I know you didn't come in here for bad news. You came in here for the gospel, for good news. But I've got bad news for you, and I don't want to break it to you softly. 2018 was five years ago. Uh, you feel that with me? Do you feel the feeling that I feel? That 2018, which is a, to me a very relevant year, a year that is still cool to me and trendy, and I would the artists that I still think are relevant, I think are new. They are not as new as I thought, and they are from 2018. In fact, I was looking for a trendy little uh, sermon title for YouTube today, and I came up with God's plan, the Drake song. You know, I don't. I hate to break it to you. I only love my bed and my mom. I'm sorry. That song, which I will go and talk to kids about, like as though that's still relevant. That song happened five years ago. To the fifth grader, it happened to them in first grade. You just let your mind wrap around the fact that these things are five years ago. This is us. The series came out in 2016. What is that? I don't even know. Four plus three, six, seven years ago. I was in a uh, D now camp with my son Ollie, who's six. I still treat him like a baby, but he's six. This is how time flies. And we're listening to this song, and I'm, and I'm in there, and I'm like, man, I just love the heart of the Lord just continuing to roll out new songs for new seasons, and just thank you, Lord, for this generation and the song's oceans, Lord, for what you're doing in this generation through that song's oceans. And then I Googled it for this sermon. That song came out 10 years ago. That's like just as I am, basically, you know, like from when I was born, dude. Flies by. And I know, so I'm coming from the, I'm about to turn 40, and so... You know, if you don't even know the names of these songs, you don't understand. If you know the names of this song, I hate to tell it to you. Let me be the first to tell you, you're old. If you know the names of these songs and you think they're new and they're not, one of those dates is not wrong, okay? And it's not your perception date. It's the actual date that's in the calendar. Five years ago is a long time. Uh, I used to just look at dads in, their, in the 70s outfit and the 70s shoes and the 70s socks, and I'm just like, why are you in the 90s dressing in the 70s? And, and why are you wearing old things? Because they're so old. And I know the answer now. It's because to them, it's not that old feels like yesterday. That's exactly why. So anyways, just a little tip for uh, empathy for your dad, okay? It doesn't seem like that long ago when those shoes were cool, okay? So just, just catch up with them there, okay? Uh, here's a question for your pondering uh, this morning as we get into James chapter 4. <laughs> would it be in your wisdom that you would want your 2018-year-old uh, self or version of yourself running your life today? Getting the thing, uh, just start off today. Think about yourself in 2018, okay? If, you, if you're 20 right now, you were 15 years old. You didn't even have that beard on your face. That thing was just a glimmer in your father's eye, okay? You were 15 years old. Do you want the 15-year-old self, version of yourself, running the 20-year-old version of yourself? Or if you're 25, you know, and maybe you, since 20 to 25, I don't know, maybe you met somebody, broke up with somebody, married somebody, just, you know, had, had kids or whatever. Do you want the 20-year-old self running the 25-year-old version of your life? Do you want the 25-year-old the, the, the version of your life running the 30 and so on and so forth? When you, when you take your age and subtract it by five, would you want that version of you, that personality, that set of limitations, the, the, the limited knowledge, the, wisdom, the limited experience running the life that you have with all of its complexities, all the mental things that you have going on, the health things going on, the budget things that are going on, is the person that you're thinking of back then competent to lead the life that you're living right now? And if it is, either God told you the future, or <laughs> the bad news about well, the good news about that is, I guess that's a little more comforting, but the bad news about that is it probably means that the last five years have not meant much 
in terms of what has gotten you from 2018 until 2023. And thus, thence, thus, thus, I don't even know if that's his word. Thus, we make an important conclusion about planning and five-year plans is that the fatal flaw of five-year plans is that they were, fi- they were designed five years too early. The fatal flaw with your and my's projections and plans is that they were designed without all of the details and experiences and wisdom and relationships and challenges and pruning and guidance and all the things that happened since 2018. The fatal flaw of your five-year plan from 2018 is it didn't have 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 included in it. The fatal flaw of five-year plans is that they were made five years too early. They're missing all the experiences and all the wisdom and all the relationships that you would need to lead your life right now, Sunday, June 18th in 2023. And so it is right now, if you're thinking, if you're future-minded, you're vision-oriented, you're plan-oriented, you're thinking about 2028, and the reason why that seems like a good idea today is because you've never been smarter and better than you are today. And so you think with wisdom that you're able to plan five years out, but if you were to look back to 2015 or 2018, you realize exactly how foolish that is because of all the things that you're going to be missing from here until there. So James is going to um, really become an advocate uh, for a shifting in our prayer life in the end of James chapter 4, and that is... He's going to advise to us as we get down on our knees and before our journals and think about the next step and the next step after that and the five years after that to make our plans, but also follow him. In other words, to pray, we will do this, this, and this, dot, 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 if his will is this, this, and this. All you uh, plan A, you know, type A people that have your plans and your vision, your notebook, he's not hating on y'all. Jesus is not against, he doesn't say, you know, don't don't plan about tomorrow. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. That's a difference. So all the plan A people can just rest assured plans are good deals. But here's the deal about all your plan A people is that the plan that you have in your notebook is not the end. It's just the beginning. And if you get to the next five years of your five-year plan and it happens exactly like it is that written in your journal, I can promise you one thing. The distance between you and that five years probably did not involve God because the plans that you have are just the beginning. They are not the end. As it says in Proverbs 16.9, the heart plans its course, but the Lord establishes steps. And so James, as he's talking about your prayer life and your plan life and your strategy, is writing because he's not, he's not anti-plan. James and Jesus, his half-brother, are not anti-plan. They are pro-partnership. Like if I come up to Kyra in 2005, you know, and I get down on one knee and I, you know, propose to her to get married, and I say to her, we are going to have this many kids, and you're going to wear this kind of clothes, and we're going to go to this kind of church, and we're going to live in this type of a neighborhood, and we're going to pay this type of money, and we're going to budget this type of way. I've not invited her into a relationship. I've invited her into a dictatorship. Because God is not, so God is not anti-plan. He's just anti-dominance when it comes to relationship. He's not anti-plan. He's pro-partnership. And God's sovereignty, which is very important to consider, the tension between personal responsibility and God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is not so much about forcing the future as unfolding it. God's sovereignty is not so much about dictating every little robotic micromanaged step that you're about to take to get as much as managing the overall outcome of what's going to happen for the good and glory of Christ Jesus in your life. You could use the analogy of a playing chess. I played the chess, play against the computer 17 times or whatever. And you can move the pieces however you want, but at the end of the day, you already know what the outcome is going to be. You're not going to beat that chess master on an expert. Similarly, C.S. Lewis talks about little twigs on a stream And the twigs can oscillate left and right and can move right and left, and you can get married here, stay single here, you can do this. But at the end of the day, all things, not some things, not if things, but all things are going to be turned for the good and glory of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't change the fact that you have responsibility and faith 
to do what you are going to do today, just because I'm sovereign as a, as a father, it means I'm over the household of my family. Just don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't control every little thing that comes into my family's doors if you come and visit my house. Just to know that sovereignty is not always the, the same as micromanagement or as hyper-control. And so this is, the, this is what, what God is doing. As I even think about being a pastor for, in this church since 2018, is I have my plans and I have my whiteboard and I have the things that I want to see. But from 2018 to 2023, how many of you guys know that I had my plans set, but God was the one that directed my steps? And there are people that are leading at this church, and there's real estate and building plans that have happened all around me that I would never have been able to know from that whiteboard. And so I would go back to myself in 2018 and say, hey, man, listen, have your plans, but follow Jesus. Have your plans, and don't let your way, your plans get in the way of following Jesus. So James 4 uh, says it this way, verse 13. Now listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to this city and spend a year there and carry on business and making money. He's actually speaking to a very specific um, maritime uh, business marketing uh, merchant class that lived and existed in, in, in the city of Jerusalem, whereby they would, um, they would chart out the course of their itinerary, and they had a, a very sophisticated, well-planned path of their father and what their father did, and they would, they would plan out, and they would know the, the winds, and they would know the, the, the cities and the economies and all that kind of thing, and they could actually plan out what they were going to do in January, February, March, and April. He's speaking to that kind of a person, and that kind of, he understands that, how occupation is, you know, whatever, uh, five days of the week that you spend on this earth. Occupation is a big part of your life, and he's saying, listen, some of y'all's occupation actually makes you think you're in control, but you're not. Be careful that you don't mistake your relationship to your business and the controlling that you can have of those types of things to your relationship with the universe or your relationship with God, really. And so verse 14 says, why do you, why do, you uh, do that? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's but a mist. James is borrowing from Solomon there uh, in Ecclesiastes. It's but a vapor. It's, it's a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. There's nobody more cocky, more arrogant, more sure of themselves than the kid that just graduated college, right? He just read the book on the body and the systems, and he's so smart, and he didn't pay a dime because he got all the scholarships. And so, so the illusion there is when you graduate college and you just got reading out of the book, but you never experienced any life, you actually, the book can give you this false sense of security that you actually, because you can define something, can actually control it. But just because you can define something does not mean that you know how to handle the mother of the son that just died on your operating table. The ability to specialize in a certain occupation and control the widgets that are coming down your assembly line does not mean that you've had any experience or have any control over the life that's coming towards you. That police officer just got a uh, police school. They know all the CPR and they know the crisis management and they watched all the videos of all the idiots that all did it wrong from the dash cam and they think that when they get into that situation they're going to be better because they got trained and they're going to learn from their mistakes. But you and I know but the difference between being a specialist, an expert in any given field, the ability to define the, the terms and the language of what something is gives you no reason to be able to, to control it. A doctor in front of that operating system can know everything about the heart, but there is no doctor in this life that if a heart is gone can bring it back because you can, you can, you can define something without being able to, to, necessary, to necessarily control it. So right in the middle of our Bible um, are these two beautiful books that the Bible speaks to just the experience of, of wisdom. Proverbs says the wisdom's like a lady and she's in the street and she can speak to anybody that's humble enough. You don't have to be rich or smart or tall or handsome. You can just hear wisdom. Sit down on my lap, says, you know, 
Solomon, and hear the wisdom of the Lord and sit by the tree and live by it day and night and do right and don't do wrong and be faithful and then you'll see fruitfulness. And so, so th- these wisdom books that are in the middle include Song of Solomon and, 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 uh, and Job and all these other things have these two center pillars and that is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are two wings of the same bird. They both represent wisdom, but they, they, they complement each other in a very particular way. And that is that the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is meant to be written to, to all people, but especially Christians, about what to do when life actually works. The book of Proverbs is, is, is given to people to understand the way life works. But Proverbs doesn't make sense in life without also reading Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is the book that's written for what to do when life doesn't make sense. And if we have any semblance of literary understanding of, of, or, 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 or word-of-mouth understanding of a defining wisdom, we have to have an understanding of how to take our steps both when life makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. Proverbs is not a promise. Proverbs is written for the types of life that usually happens, but not all all the time happens. For example, Proverbs 3 says that if you were to steward your finances in a godly way and lift up Christ and not your idols, you'll experience plenty in your barns. But you know as well as I, there are plenty of people that do that and do experience the favor of blessing of, of of the Lord. But you know well as well as I, and maybe that's you, that there are plenty of people in here stewarding their money and their finances, and their barns are empty for all their days. Proverbs exists because we need to know what to do when life makes sense, but Ecclesiastes exists because sometimes it doesn't. Proverbs 22 says that if you will raise a child in the way they will go, then that child will not depart from it. And I just want to encourage fathers in the room or, or, or people that have kids in the room that are dealing with this kind of a thing, Proverbs is not a promise. Sometimes you pray for the kid and give them the Bible and teach them the right way to go, and you send them off and they go the wrong way. Because Proverbs is not a promise. Sometimes life makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Lastly, Proverbs 16 says, if you do right by people, you will have peace. How many of you guys know some jerks in your life that you could do right to them all day long and there will not be peace? Because sometimes life makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And so Ecclesiastes compares the word life to the word that that, that James just mentioned in, in verse 14. Proverbs suggests that life is a tree, that if you sow down and you drink the water, the tree will be fruitful. But sometimes life is not a tree, Sometimes Ecclesiastes and James says life is more like a vapor. It's hevel. It's smoke. In other words, sometimes life is short and fleeting, but also remember the, also the, the, the complex and, and, and colorful picture of the symbol of, of smoke or hevel is that not only is it here today and gone tomorrow, but it's here today, and if you try to grab at it, it seems that the more you grab, it just dissipates out of your life. <laughs> Have you felt this sense of lack of control when it comes to the way that real life works after college. And I want to suggest to you, I want to suggest to you that this isn't actually on accident, this is on purpose. Um, uh, uh, When I was a little kid, you know, you were probably like me, you know, you go down to the beach and you you see all the sand and and it's just a big, it's just a big, you don't even think about all the fish poop in there, you know what I mean? Like you're just ignorant and it's bliss and you're like, I'm going to go down there and just build me some sandcastles. And you don't have any plans and you don't have any agenda you know, you just go down there and you just get your little hands and you just dig around in the mud and you're, you're building little sandcastles, ugly. It just looks like a, you know, just a, a little mound of who knows what's down there. And as much as you build it, that water comes in. And unfortunately, nature is not like Santa Claus. It doesn't care about your feelings. It's just going to run over your sandcastle and it just clobbers your sandcastle and you just kind of can't, you have a picture in your mind, you can't get it to come back. Right? 
So that's three. But when you're eight, you get a little bit more sophisticated if you're like me. So, you know, you go down to the beach and you're like, boy, I'm not going to be played like a punk like that one more time. Like, I'm going down there. I'm going to build a sandcastle, you know, that CNN and Fox News comes in and takes a picture of, you know. So you go down there and you bring the tools this time, you know. And you think about it, you got to stay hydrated. That's half of the game. If you're not hydrated, you're done, okay? So you got to bring the water, you got the water bottles, you know? And, you know, you have a picture and a schematic, and you got some sunscreen because you don't want to turn into a lobster on the, you know, in the meantime, and you start building. And you don't do like these other fools down the, down the beach, do the little three-year-olds. You build something with a good solid foundation, you know? And you build it up high to the tide, you know? And you know about tides now. You're eight. You're not three, okay? You ain't no chump. Okay, so you go down there, and you build it, and you, and, you, and, you, and you sculpt it, and it's got the swerve, and it's got the, it looks like, you know, Triton from a Little Mermaid. It just has all these little, like, Greek-looking things, and you build it, and it's just a masterpiece. Boom, bop, boom, bop, boom. And uh, for the record, this is an illustration. This is not me. I'd still, at eight years old, would still not make it. But there's a kid that makes it, right? And they have Instagram uh, of, of all these great sandcastles. And you do it, and they go crazy. And the little three-year-old kid's like, I want to be like you when I'm eight. And they come down there, and they see it. And for five seconds, you're happy. And then in five more seconds, you make this really startling but sobering reality. Is that no matter how great you built that sandcastle, you can come back next year and it's not going to be there. This is what Ecclesiastes equips us for. Sometimes you build the business, you hand it down to your kids, and they lose it all. And they don't care. And they walk all over. Sometimes you do the right thing, and the guy that's doing the wrong thing gets better than you did. Because sometimes life works, and sometimes it doesn't, and God's in it all. But walk with me here on this, right? Walk with me here on this, is that then, let's say you're the little kid and you grow up, you know, and you get 25 and, and you get married and, and you have the kids, and you go down there and you see your little three-year-old and they start making sandcastles, and you remember what it's like, and so you go down there and you help them build it, and then the next year, little Johnny's like, I'm going to go down there and build the next sandcastle, and he, he goes on, on and builds it, and this, this, this dawning thing, when you sit back and you look at your kid's prize achievement and all the sand and know that it's going to get all knocked down in a year, you realize that all that loss doesn't change the fact you still should build it. Because the point of the building was never the sandcastle. The point of the building was building it with the friend that you walked alongside in the beach. A long walk with a good friend is the point of life. That's how Ecclesiastes puts it. So the vapor is not a detour, actually. The vapor is on purpose. There are things in this life that are broken because they're sinful, and there's things in this life that are not working because it's chaos. And none of those, and all of those things are included and encapsulated in the Bible. The Bible is not making a neat, tidy package for Christians that says that everything's going to work out the way that you want it to, and it's on design. It's not a detour. Life as a vapor is important, and here's why. Because life as a vapor takes us from the young, immature illusion of control into the real point of the sandcastle, which is a long walk with a good friend, into the life of intimacy. If my plans always work, I don't actually need to study the paradigms underneath them to figure out the wisdom of why they work, to understand the heart of God, to really not just be a slave and a servant to do what God says, but to really want what he wants, to become a mature son and not just a slave, is to understand the paradigms beneath them. But if my paradigms work, if my paradigms work and they don't break down, then I never need the person that made the paradigms. Can I suggest to you the reason why life is sometimes not working out? Sometimes you're working harder and getting less. Can I suggest to you that's not on you know, as, as an anomaly, you know, to everybody else. But it's actually by design, because if your plans don't work, you have to consult the paradigms. And if your paradigms don't work, you got to cling to Jesus. And a life where all of your plans work out, can I just postulate? You could talk about, but you will not cling to Jesus. So vapors are on purpose. So he says, you know, the thing about plans is it's not only foolish to plan without God, 
but it's actually arrogant, and it's evil to plan without God. This is what he says in James chapter 4. Instead, you ought to say, not just, it's my will, but it's my will, dot, 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 only if it's his will do I want it to happen. Instead, your prayer life should not just be my will, but thy will. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting, he says, is evil. My favorite things as, as a Christian, let alone a pastor, is good testimonies. Sometimes I get up here preaching for someone, I'm just, I just want, why don't you just come up here and just tell your story? I mean, we're theorizing all day long. The testimony of God is the power of prophecy. Like, it's, it's like what he's doing in somebody, he's shouting to everybody else that's listening, hey man, this is who I am and this is what I can do. It becomes real when we hear the power of testimony. And, um, and the cool thing about testimonies is, and you can read in the Bible, and you can think about all the testimonies you've ever heard, is you'll hear testimonies about that same person of Jesus, and every testimony is different. Have you ever noticed that? When Jesus heals somebody, he heals people differently almost every single time because in the great panorama and, and color and all the different types of personalities, God is meeting each person in their own place and, and meeting them in a way that only he can meet them. Each testimony is different. However, there is one common, commonality between them all. So, I, for example, I, I mean, I, there's so many testimonies I could go through. I just listed off some of them here in my, in my, in my notebook. Um, I had uh, a mentor in my life she was an elderly lady. Matter of fact, she's just on the phone. Just, she just needs somebody that's praying loud. I mean, I'm good with the people that are like, and Lord, please. But I mean, just shut up and just shouting through the phone and just praying the blood of Jesus. And, and we call her sometimes. This lady, <clears throat> this is 20 years after the fact, shows up at a church service. And the murderer of the, of the one that, that killed her sister catches her eye off in the, in the 15th pew down, down the church. And she is provoked by the Spirit of God to go over to that lady and say, ma'am, this is who I am, this is what you did, and I just want you to know that Jesus forgives you and I forgive you too. And we came for a sermon, but that's the sermon. I mean, that's what's going on. That's the testimony. I know a lady uh, down in Guatemala. You know, we were going down there, and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had ever in, in this uh, girl's home, kind of like a, a foster home. And there's a lady down there, and, and you can tell from leadership, like, this is all beautiful, but... It takes, it, it's, not all, it's not just all the people that are doing all the things and, and, and serving. Behind all that, there is a leader that must have paid a price. And this lady, Gabby, I, mean, I knew it once I started talking to her. I asked her the whole story, and her and her husband are high-powered attorneys, and they leave everything, or she leaves everything and decides to host this, this uh, Prince of Peace, this place um, in, in Guatemala that hosts all these girls that are getting saved and being you know, reunited with their families and also placed in, in foster care and so forth. And so the point is, you go on and on and all these testimonies, they're all so different. But here's the one thing that everything has in common. The thing that a testimony, a testimony can be short or long or it could be cuddly or it could be really like sharp that the Lord comes in and cuts somebody. Like, like it could be lots of different things. Here's one thing that testimonies cannot be about. Testimonies cannot be about, by definition, can, cannot be about boasting. What you will never hear in a Christian testimony, if it's really Christian testimony, is I'm so glad that I woke myself up from my own slop and I walked myself down to church. If that's the testimony, then that's not a testimony. One thing that a testimony cannot be is something that I plan and I did, because if I did, then it's not a testimony. Here's one thing that you will hear in every testimony, guy, girl, old, young, you know, mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake, alter, 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 or whatever. Like, the thing that you're always going to hear, the metronome, the, 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 the backbeat of it all, is this. It's not, I'm glad I did this. It's like, I can't believe he did this. I can't believe that after all that I've done, he still chooses me. 
I can't believe that he used that person and this person and that person to do that. I can't believe he did this. This is one thing that is not allowed in a Christian testimony. It's an oxymoron because, because it is by definition the opposite of it. A Christian testimony cannot include boasting because, because boasting would mean that I did it, that I saved myself. And so you think about this, right? You think about the testimonies of the Lord when you think about people like Moses. When you think about people like Moses who were disunited with their family or Joseph who was falsely accused of rape or Daniel who was like stripped down and put into to a lion's den. You think about Jacob who like squandered all of his years in foolishness and all of his kids went crazy in dysfunction. You think about Peter who denied three times. When you think about the story, when you think about Paul getting knocked off his horse, right, and being beaten and thrown with an inch of his life, right? When you, when, you, when you think about the testimonies of God within the Old and the New Testament, the common thing that you never see in any of these testimonies is boasting because here's the point. The, the thing about boasting, the thing about boasting in Christ and not in, in ourselves, the thing about boasting is that if I boast, it means he didn't do it. And so if you were to ask that person, like, in the, in the bigger scope of the testimony of Peter and John and David and all these types of things, you know, when you think about all, all, all the testimonies, but then you zoom out and then zoom into the day that they did it, they would never have changed the way that they got saved, but they also wouldn't have choose, chosen it either. They wouldn't have chosen it. That the, 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 the reason why it's, it's, it requires us not to boast in salvation is because the thing is about being saved is we're not just being guided. We're being saved, and mostly we're being saved from ourselves. And so the plans that are coming at us, oftentimes we can know the plans of God because we didn't plan them. Actually, you could inverse that logic and say, if you planned it, it's, it's probably not the whole story. Because the plans of God rarely come through the plans of man. They actually come despite and counter to and counterintuitive to the plans of man. This is why I think James would say that plans without God are evil because plans without God boast that salvation is without grace. Plans without God suggest if I'm making a plan and I think that in 2018 or 23, where am I? What year is it? 28? So plans without God suggests, suggests that I have all the things and know all the things that I need to save myself between now and then. Plans with a God boast in a salvation without grace. So it all comes down to what now and what, um, what's, what's significant for today. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Here's how simple it is. Here's what today is about. Here's what today is about. In the middle of the sandcastles, in the middle of all your vision, in the middle of the big global things that are happening and the salvation for the nations, it's such a big ordeal and a cosmic reality of things that God is doing in the earth and you are participating in, but know your lane. James 4.17 tells you what it is. If anyone then knows good, then do it. I was uh, <clears throat> coming up in 2005, you know, when I was getting married and, uh, and you know, getting into ministry. And I will tell you what, I don't know what it is. You could tell me, maybe come up your service and let me know. I must have it right in my face. I am a magnet for multi-level salesmen. I don't know why. I'll just be in Barnes & Noble. They'll be like, hey, listen, do you have a dream for your life? Can I help it come true? Like, as soon as I get in there, it's like I start to know. Like, and if you're making it with that, more power to you. I'm not hating on you. But for me, it just wasn't, wasn't for me. And I would just get hit. I would have on my eye calendar probably four meetings a, month, four meetings a year. I mean, whoever it was at Amway must know my name by now. must be famous because of all the meetings that I went. I never bought into it, but I would sit down. And it's an eerie feeling, right? Like when the, the, the rapport of the relationship that you're, that you're sitting with, when you're talking to them, and you can feel it almost in the body language when you go and sit down at that meeting, when the agenda shifts from a relationship to sales. You can sense the agenda. You can sense the dividedness of before I was just right here with you right now to 
I have a plan that I'm executing in our table that I have expectation for, and you can feel when that hits the moment. And so here's the thing about plans. You've gotta, we've got to understand these things, is that plans are beautiful because they close doors for the present day. They, they tell you which path not to walk down and what you're focused on and what you're doing and what you're going to do after. Plans are beautiful because they close doors, but they're also dangerous because they close doors. The reality is, is that the only place that you and I can learn and change and do is today. Today is the only time that we have to actually learn something. And, and the reality is, if you went a Groundhog Day T-chart of your existence, if you walked down the thing with a plan, with all your closed doors of all the things you're not going to believe and all the things you're going to do and all the people you're going to talk to and all the people you're not going to talk to, I guarantee you, you're not in the best possible spot to learn and to change and to do. But the gift of somebody that really understands the sovereignty of God, that the sovereignty of God is to control the outcome, but not necessarily the micromanage and the robot, is the sovereignty of God opens us up to live for today. Because if I know that God has taken care of me yesterday, and that he's going to take care of me tomorrow, then I can have my plans and give them to him, trust him enough that I don't have to have an agenda. All I have to do is to do good today in Jesus. And so I'm a big Family Neighbors Nations guy. I love Family Neighbors Nations. That's my mission statement, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I love it. I love plans. You know, I've been a pastor here for two, since 2000, 2023, okay? And I can just tell you that if I stuck to my definition of Family Neighbors and Nations all the way through stubbornly, I don't think we would be where we are, or I would be where I am as a person, or necessarily we would be where we are as a church, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened between then and now that didn't seem to fit my definition of what Family Neighbors and Nations is. So if you woke up today and you just said, you're going to Father's Day, you're going to lunch, we're getting out of here in just a second. But you get, you get, out, of the, you get out of your car and you walk down the thing and you, you played Bill Murray. You have two options to play the same day but with a different attitude, right? Bill Murray, Groundhog's Day. And you do family names. Here's the irony. If you put your plan so dead center of where you are instead of Jesus, here's the irony. You're probably going to miss the family neighbors and the nations. Isn't that making sense? Like, it's ironic that the plans can actually divide us from the present. And I actually come into the plan, and because I'm distracted by my plan, I actually don't do my plan. It's not that plans are bad. It's just that they're not the end of it. So I think what God is saying is that we would have a plan, but the, here's the beauty of setting the plan with the person, and here's what happens. When that person holds our plan, we can trust him more than ourselves. He has a better definition and a better dictionary. He's going to get us to the plan. He understands the things that are going to work and the things that aren't going to work, and he's a great place to put our plans so that we put the, things, the plans in his hands, and guess what? Now we can stand and we can live for today. We can ask ourselves this question. It's going to be on the screen. Show me the good I can do today in Jesus. We are not as smart as we think we are, and we are not going to be here as long as we think we are, and we don't know nearly as much as we give ourselves credit for. And so therefore, in the sandcastles of life, in the reality that he's saving me, not just guiding me, he's teaching me things that I don't know yet. He's giving me things that I don't have yet. If I come into my day, I actually have a chance to actually follow Jesus if my plans are in his hands, if I will only ask this question, close the journal, and, and live today by this, Holy Spirit, show me the good I can do today in Jesus. I'm actually going to camp out on this question as the band comes forward, and we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to literally do this with us, to have an exercise with us. Sovereignty does not mean he's micromanaging. If you have no choice, you have very little to offer him. If you have no choices in this life, you have very little to dignify and honor him with because you didn't have the choice to do it. So with these choices, we're coming into today, and we're asking him this question. I want, I want to invite you with me. Holy Spirit, show me the good to do today in Jesus. Some of you guys have a certain relationship pattern with your dad. And if you're not careful, you're going to allow 
the past and the way that you've defined it to limit what you think God can do today. And that plan, that paradigm that you have, is going to rob you of the opportunity to do good. But here's the thing. This is, not, this is what it says. It's very simple to these little children that are in this room. It's real simple. If you don't know it's a sin, then it's not a sin. But if you know good to do today and you don't do it, that's not good. Aside from your plans, aside from your journal, aside from your vision, what is there good to do today in Jesus? Holy Spirit, show me what is there good to do in Jesus. What is there something that would be out of my plan? What is there something that I need to go and research that my plan doesn't give account for? Show me the limitations of my plan so I don't recreate my past as I live in the present. Open the doors of my heart. Open the doors of my mind that I might have time for strangers, time for neighbors, time for for listening. Holy Spirit, thank you for my plans. I give them to you so that I can live today. Holy Spirit, what is the good I can do today? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.